Well, we have uh, been studying Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus for several weeks now, and uh, we have sort of turned a corner last Sunday uh, when we moved from chapter 3 into chapter 4. So the first three chapters of Paul's letter are what we might call the indicative. Uh, this is what you're supposed to know and to believe. And uh, in the last three chapters, 4, 5, and 6, we could call the imperative. This is then how you are how to live. This is how you're to behave based on what you know and believe. And so we kind of we made that turn in the letter. And uh, we're, uh, Paul, Paul began in uh, chapter 4, verse 1, telling us that we need to maintain the unity that we have been given by the Spirit in the peace of Christ himself. Remember, it is Christ who is our peace, who joined together Jew and Gentile, all of the different peoples, all of the various peoples, into the church and gathers them in himself, is, who is our peace, and makes us this one new man. And so we've been given this unity in Christ that we are then to maintain. Uh, we don't have to make it ourselves, but we sure can mess it up if we're careless. And so Paul says, I want you to be careful to maintain that. In fact, he says, fight for that unity. You need to be aware of it, and you need to go about the business of fighting for that unity in the church with the weapons of what? Humility, gentleness, and patience, and forbearance. Kind of an interesting fight, isn't it? To fight with humility, to fight with patience and forbearance and gentleness towards one another. But we do that to fight for unity so that we can maintain this peace that we have in the one body the body of Christ, which is what we are as the church. And so now Paul is going to go on to instruct us to grow up. Now that you're one body, grow up, mature as the body of Christ, which is what bodies do, right? They're born, they're young, they grow, uh, they, they mature, so that we would serve the plan of God, which is to unite all things in Christ. This is the big theme in the first part of Ephesians. There's a mystery. It has not known, but now it is known because Paul has made it known, because God made it known to Paul. And it is that God's purpose and plan for all of the cosmos is to unite all things in Christ Jesus. What a glorious purpose. And he's using his church. He has a glorious purpose for his church. That, that we will be filled with Christ and that we will be the fullness of God and that we would be his glory on earth. Not because we're so awesome and we're so special, not that, but because of Christ's work done in us at the command of God to make us holy and blameless on the day that Christ returns. It's because of the work that Christ is going to do in us, has done and continues to do, and will bring to completion that we will be the glory of God's inheritance in the saints. We've talked about all those things, so I'm not going to re-preach verses 1 to 3 as much as I'd like to, but it just, it just flows together. It's all strung together. And, and let's read this morning Paul's instructions then for us to grow up and to mature. And I want to go ahead and start in verse 1. I'll read verse 1 to verse 16 as you follow along, but we're focusing this morning on verses 7 to 16. This is the word of God. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, 
There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave apostles and the prophets and the evangelists and the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Well, if you want to take your sermon outline, uh, it'll help you to follow along. and You'll see this sermon theme. Spiritual growth happens in the church. Christ gives gifts of peace to his body so that he would build up one another in truth and love to complete maturity in Christ. There's a goal for us. It's to be mature in Christ. It's for all this growth to take place. And Paul's saying that it takes place in the body, which is the church. Christ gives us grace. Look at verse 7 again. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now there's a bit of a contrast here. When you see the word but, there's a, there's a contrast here. And, and it's, just a, it's just the language that took place before this, one, 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 with the language that comes after it, which is the, uh, the diversity of gift giving. Christ gathers the many, many diverse peoples, even the Gentiles. He gathers them together in one body, so we have that unity language taking place in oneness. But then, but then Christ distributes all of these diverse gifts to everyone who's in the church, everyone who's a member of that one body. Notice three things about these gifts. First, they're gifts of grace. Now, this is not what we would call saving grace, which, which would take us back to Ephesians chapter 2, the grace by which through faith we come to be saved in the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's not describing the grace of God to save. Rather, he's describing what we could call serving grace. This is a measure of grace that we might serve him. This is the grace of God that enables us to serve. Remember chapter 2 verse 10. Having been saved... We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This grace is connected to those good works which are for God's church, his body. Also, these gifts are given by Christ, did you notice? He's the one who measures them out. He decides who gets what gift. He decides how much they get. 
Jesus distributes this gift of God's grace specifically designed and intended for you. Your gift will enable you to walk in the good works that God has prepared for you. We should be very reassured by that. That's very reassuring. Oh my goodness, the Lord has saved me and he's, he's prepared these good works for me to work and to do. I, I'm not even sure what they are. I don't, I'm not sure I'm going to be able to complete those tasks. How's that going to work? Well, he's, he's given you serving grace so that you can succeed in serving him well. And we should also be very thankful for God's gift of serving grace. Assured and thankful that the Lord whom we love, who has called us to serve him, has given us grace to do so. He's given us what we need so that we would have the capacity to do what he has called us to do. Thirdly, perhaps obvious, but it's not to be overlooked, each and every member of Christ's body receives a gift of serving grace. Each and every one. Nobody is left out. You know, all of these things are all of grace. God's grace makes us alive. God's grace brings us together. And God's grace enables us to serve him. All of these are gifts of God's grace, his favor upon his people. Now you might ask, how do we know that this grace, this gift, is for serving the body of Christ? And, and I think there are three reasons. I think there are three reasons, three things we can see in Ephesians that show us that. First is Paul's experience with the gift of serving grace that he described back in chapter 3. Second is Paul's teaching from the scripture that Christ is the giver of serving grace, which is what we're going to look at shortly. And then third, Paul's explanation of those gifts himself right here in our passage. First, we have Paul's autobiographical explanation of the gifts of grace given to him in chapter 3. Remember, we just looked at this a couple of Sundays ago. We can, we can read here how Paul himself understands this thing to work. Look at chapter 3, verses one to three, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Jesus Christ, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written, briefly, Paul received from God a gift of serving grace. He calls it a stewardship. God made Paul a steward of the mystery of Christ. That is, two things here the gospel for Gentiles, and God's plan for the church. And Paul says that that was a gift of God's grace to him. It was given to Paul to distribute to the church. It was given to me for you. There's more down in verse 7. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace. There it is again. Which was given to me by the working of his power. So it was a gift of God's grace when God made Paul a minister of the gospel. Christ's gift of serving grace to Paul was to make him an apostle to the Gentiles. We read that about his calling, his salvation and his calling on the, on the Damascus Road in Acts chapter 9. And Paul was to serve the church in two ways. We read them right here. Chapter 3, verse 8. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach. To preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. That's the gospel. So Paul was to preach the gospel to Gentiles so that they would be made alive and gathered near in Christ. And then in verse 9, to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God. So Paul is to teach this knowledge to the church and he's praying for the church that we would understand it. He teaches it and then he prays for us. Paul's own apostolic ministry was a gift of grace from God for Paul to serve the church. 
It was a gift from God of serving grace. And when Paul served according to the gift of grace given to him, the church was benefited. He says, I'm a prisoner on your behalf. The church benefited and was built up in Christ. The second reason we know this is serving grace is in verses 8 to 10 right here in our passage in chapter 4 this morning. Let me read those. Therefore it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In parentheses, In saying this, he ascended, what does it mean, but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended, far above all the heavens, that he might fill all in all. So the second reason we know this is serving grace is from Paul's reference to Psalm 68, verse 18. That's the little little section set apart for you in your Bible there. It's indented or, or, or made its own paragraph in some way. Turn, if you would, to Psalm 68. Turn to Psalm 68. And verse 18, let's read it there. This is a psalm of David. It reads, you, and David is speaking of God. You, God, ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train and receiving gifts from among men, You know, to the victor belongs the spoils. That's what that looks like. Even among the rebellious, that the Lord may dwell there. God is going to conquer all of his enemies and dwell in his sanctuary. Now, Paul is applying this imagery in the psalm to Christ. Not God the Father, but Christ the Son. Look again at Ephesians uh, chapter 4, verse 8. When he, that's Christ, ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts rather than receives gifts to men. Is Paul just not very good at quoting Scripture? Paul seems to to make a slight alteration to the events in the psalm, saying that instead of giving gifts, he receives gifts. But Christ gives gifts, Paul says. Now, our question is, is Paul's interpretation of Psalm 68, 18 accurate? Yes. Of course it is. Paul is Christ's apostle to the Gentiles by the will of God. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1. Yes, this is another of his insights into the mystery of Christ made known to him by revelation from God. Chapter 3, verses 3 and 4. And Paul is doing good biblical theology. The way that Jesus taught his disciples to do biblical theology on the Emmaus Road in Luke chapter 24. When, he rege- when he, the resurrected Christ, remember opened their minds, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. All the scriptures is the Old Testament, their Bible at the time. But you see, Paul isn't isn't altering this one verse. He's, He's actually distilling down this whole psalm into that one verse. Paul isn't just referring back to verse 18 of Psalm 68. Paul's bringing all of Psalm 68 forward and into our view. We will understand that this is the very plan of God for Christ to be the giver of gifts of service to the church when we see him as the warrior king in all of Psalm 68, which is what Paul sees. So we're going to read Psalm 68, or most of it. Turn to Psalm 68 again.
Psalm 68 is a psalm of David who himself was a warrior king who won many victories over his and God's enemies and led many captives and the spoils up Mount Zion and distributed gifts to his people. And he's writing about God and prophetically about Christ. Now follow along with me as I read. I'll make a couple of comments along the way. We're, we're not going to, this is a survey, we're not going to examine every detail. Get the gist of the psalm. Get, the, get the, um, the umbrella from the beginning to the end. That's the, that, most, that, 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 that movement that I want you to see. Think in general terms, beginning in verse 1. God shall arise, his enemies shall be scattered, and those who hate him shall flee before him. As smoke is driven away, you shall drive them away. As wax melts before the fire, so the wicked shall perish before God. But the righteous shall be glad. They shall exult before God. They shall be jubilant in joy. God is going to destroy his enemies. Now, already we're hearing the plan of God from Ephesians, aren't we? Made a footstool beneath Christ's feet. Verse 4, sing to God. Sing praises to his name. Lift up a song to him who rides through the deserts. His name is the Lord. Exult before him. Father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. God settles the solitary in a home. He leads out the prisoners to prosperity. But the rebellious dwell in a parched land. God protects and takes care of his people. Verse 7, oh God, when you went out before your people, when you went out before your people, think of the general of an army out in front leading the army into battle. Oh God, when you went out before your people, when you marched through the wilderness, the earth quaked, the heavens poured down rain before God, the one of Sinai, before God, the God of Israel, rain in abundance, oh God, you shed abroad. You restored your inheritance as it languished, your flock found uh, a dwelling in it, In your goodness, O God, you provided for the needy. He fought for them because he's a warrior king, and he provided rain that restored them. Skip down to verse 18, the one that we've quoted. You ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train and receiving gifts among men, even among the rebellious, that the Lord God may dwell there. God is victorious, and he's leading captives in his wake, and he's establishing his place where he's going to dwell. Verse 19 Blessed be the Lord who daily bears us up. God is our salvation. Our God is a God of salvation. And to God the Lord belong deliverances from death. Isn't that interesting? God has deliverances from death to give because he owns them. But God will strike the heads of the enemies, the hairy crown of him who walks in his guilty ways. The Lord said, I will bring them back from Bashan. I will bring them back from the depths of the sea, that you may strike your feet in their blood, that the tongues of your dogs may have their portion from the foe. This is, this is utter victory and utter desolation for God's foes. Salvation through judgment. God brings the warrior king to his people. Verse 24, your procession is seen, O God, the procession of my God and my King into the sanctuary. The singers in front, the musicians last, between them, virgins playing tambourines. Bless God in the great congregation, the Lord, O you who are of Israel's fountain. There is Benjamin, the least of them in the lead, the princes of Judah in their throng, the princes of Zebulun, the princes of Naphtali. This is our victorious warrior king in his procession. It's a triumph leading captives in his wake. Summon your power, O God, verse 28, the power, O God, by which you have worked 
for us sounds a lot like Ephesians and the immeasurable greatness of the power that God works towards his people, doesn't it? Because of your temple at Jerusalem, kings shall bear gifts for you. Rebuke the beasts that dwell among the reeds, the herd of bulls with the calves of the peoples. Trample underfoot those who lust after tribute. Scatter the peoples who delight in war. Nobles shall come from Egypt. Cush shall hasten to stretch out her hands. The plan's coming together, isn't it? Isn't this God's plan to subdue his enemies and place them under Christ's feet and unite all things in the sanctuary under Christ? That's what I'm seeing. Everything is coming under Christ. Verse 32. O kingdoms of the earth, sing to God. Sing praises to God. To him who rides in the heavens, the ancient heavens. Behold, he sends out his voice, his mighty voice. Ascribe power to God. Those whose majesty is over Israel and whose power is in the skies. Listen to verse 35. Awesome is God from his sanctuary. The God of Israel. He is the one who gives. He is the one who gives power and strength to his people. Blessed be God. You see, that was what Paul was distilling. He wasn't playing with verse 18. He was going all the way to the end of Psalm 68 to say, God gives gifts to his people. And what gifts does he give? Power and strength for the fight. And what do his people do? Bless God. Oh my goodness, that's the beginning of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Bless God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who gives us every gift in the spiritual world. Bless him, because he's a gift-giving God. And Paul says, this is Christ. This imagery is fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, as we, as we examine it, Psalm 68 may be the underpinning for Paul's entire letter to the Ephesians. You know, maybe Paul's meditation that morning, his scripture meditation that morning, he opened up his scroll, he read, uh, he read Psalm 68, and he started thinking about it and meditating on it, as you do, and he wrote his letter to the Ephesians. You see, the plan of God in Ephesians is a battle plan. His plan for the church, for his people, is a battle plan. Paul, Paul gives a parenthetical explanation as to how this warrior king can be identified as Jesus. It's really not that complicated. It's because Jesus is the one who ascended. Remember his disciples watched him in Acts ascend from the hill into the sky. The one who has ascended must first have descended. That makes sense, and that's what Paul's saying here. The lower parts is just a way of describing the earth in comparison to the heavens, which are far above. Jesus is the one who first descended from heaven to earth, showing Christ's deity. I mean, who comes from heaven to earth? God, the Son of God. And when having conquered sin and death on the cross, then he ascended far above the heavens. And from there, what shall he do? He shall... Fill all things. God's a filling God. Christ is a filling Lord. That's the plan of God that was revealed to us by Paul back in chapter 1. Go to Ephesians chapter 1. We're just going to review a couple of verses beginning in verse 19. 
And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is the body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. God in Christ is filling the whole earth with his glory. And what is that? You see, it's the entire cosmos. Everything. That's the temple. That's the sanctuary. And the church, the church, the body of Christ is the glory of God in that temple. That's God's plan for the church. That's God's plan for us. Do you believe that? Because it is glorious. It is glorious. Ask yourself, what is the battle? What is the battle? And, and what are the gifts, the powerful and strengthening gifts for this battle that Christ gives? Look, at, uh, look again at verse 11. Ephesians chapter 4. And he gave gifts. Jesus gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. So what gifts does Christ give to his church? People. People. Notice that having said that Christ gives each of us serving grace that benefits the church, you kind of would expect him to go into one of these 1 Corinthians 12 or Romans 12 lists of all or many spiritual gifts that individuals receive. We might have expected that. We didn't get it. That's not what Paul's doing here. That's not his point. That's not his purpose. He doesn't list the many very gifts that he might give, as he does in 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans 12, but staying in context, Paul is focused on the gifts that Christ gives to his church for the battle plan of God. And what he gives is people. And of the many peoples and diverse gifts of service of grace that Paul could list, he names the apostles, the New Testament prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers. Why these people? Why these five grace-gifted leaders? Well, what do they all have in common? What do they all have in common? They have all received, understand, reveal, proclaim, and instruct the Word of God. That's what they have in common. They deliver the Word of God to the church. They have been gifted with the capacity to minister the gospel to everyone else in the church. They are the ministers of the true Word of God. And what's their function? Look at verse 12. To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. They minister... God's true word to the saints, then the saints are equipped with God's true word to minister to one another. And in this way, the entire body of Christ is built up in Christ. 
That's serving grace at work in the church. That's God's blueprint for the church. Here's how it works. Gosh, I always wondered how that thing worked. Works like this. It's by grace that God, by the grace of God, that we, we hear the word of God and believe and understand and grow and mature in Christ. This is not the passage in which to ask, hey, what's my spiritual gift? We start sounding like the Corinthians then, right? Look, my gift's better than your gift. Oh no, I want her gift. Oh no, my gift's better. This, this isn't that passage. This is the passage that tells us what gifts Christ has given to his church, to us, and for what purpose? He has equipped us as ministers of God's word. He's given us gifts that will equip us so that we can become ministers of God's word, so that all of us, the church, would be built up together as the body of Christ. You see, together we're the one new man. Remember in chapter 2? We're the one new man brought together. And these gifts of power and strength, Psalm 68 words, he has given us his own body. It's almost as if Christ, who is the head, is just, has just decided to flex his muscles. I'm giving power and strength to my body. Here's what it looks like. Gifts of grace so that you would serve, so that you'd work. This is how the church works. And this is how the church grows. The church, the one new man, is a bodybuilder. He is. One member teaches and preaches so that the members around him learn and grow, and those members apply and encourage so that the members around them gain strength of faith and knowledge of Christ, and the body is built up. And look what happens in verse 13. Until we attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Wow. Yeah, I don't know if any of you guys can remember like going to comic books and there'd be a little little Charles Atlas advertisement, you know, in there, you know, dynamic tension and you say, "Wow, I'd like to look like Charles Atlas." Wow, I'd like to see the church built up in that strength. I'd like to see the church walk in that power today where we live, wouldn't you? The church is a bodybuilder. And look what happens. We're, we're in this for the long haul, right? We're to build and build and build until we all attain to the unity of the faith. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. We're to build and build and build and build until we all attain to the unity of the knowledge of Jesus, the Son of God until we all experience the breadth and length and height and depth of the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. And we're to build and build and build until we all attain to mature manhood. How do we know when we get there? When we have matured to the measure of the stature of Christ himself. When we have become like him. When will we attain all of these things, Scott? Because it sounds great. 
now. Now. Oh, sure. We will only be complete in Christ at the completion when Christ returns. Sure. But Paul says, until. But until then, which means now, each one of us works and works and works as serving grace, gifted ministers, building one another up with an eye to seeing the whole church growing and maturing in Christ. Now. We can have these things in part now and grow in them ever stronger. I'm not sure why, but as I, was, as I was thinking about this, I was thinking about two different companies that I worked for when I was a younger man. One company was about one family, about one person, really. Uh, I worked for them for about two years, and the two years prior to me coming to this company, coming to this business, the president of this company had done a financial restructuring. I don't know what that means exactly, but somehow in the restructuring of debt and the moving of assets on a balance sheet, overnight this man made $40 million when nothing had actually changed. Except that he got really, really rich. I worked for the company for two years, and after, about two years after I left, they went bankrupt. They went bankrupt. Their standard was greed. Their standard was selfishness. I hated working there. But that's what husbands do. It is. Just in case you're wondering if that's a true statement or not. I left that company actually to go to this company. It actually, it actually was a family. It actually felt like a family. You know, I was, I was in my late 20s and I'm working for this, this company, this business, and, uh, and, and everybody around me is older. Uh, you know, there's, there's people 40, 50, 60 working in this company. And, and uh, you know, this company brought in everybody at the ground level and, and, and promoted from within. And that company was smart. The experience and the knowledge that those people had. I mean, as the newbie, if I had a question... There was somebody who knew the answer, and they didn't have to look it up. There wasn't any circumstance that I could possibly run across that someone hasn't already handled and has experience in it. They were rich in knowledge and experience. And, and, and they were like a family. I mean, people who had worked for the company 25, 35, 45 years, they knew each other. They had relationships you knew where to go. Man, this, this company, we were the standard of excellence in our industry. Man, we were ready. That was just a business. We're the church. Surely, having been made alive in Christ... And having been brought near to God and to one another in Christ, we can see that we're the one body in one spirit called to one hope in Christ. Surely we can see that. 
Surely each of us is ready to be equipped and willing to minister to one another and eager to be filled with the fullness of Christ. Surely that must be the case. And what reason does Paul give for the church to build itself up to mature manhood? Well, look at verse 14. So that we may no longer be children. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Now we know why the gifts that Paul listed were people who preach and teach the faith. You see, verse 11, here, here, here Paul goes again. Verse 11 through 16, one sentence. One interesting, complex sentence. And the so that of this one sentence doesn't even come until verse 14. This is the purpose clause of the one sentence. Christ, our warrior king, when he ascended on high, leading a host of captives, gave his body, the church, the gift of preachers and teachers of his true word to build one another up into the new man, into mature manhood, so that we would no longer be children, easily influenced by false teaching. That's the purpose statement. You see, don't you, the obvious contrast between mature manhood and childhood? You see, don't you, the dangerous distinction between unity, faith, and knowledge and human cunning and deceitful schemes? You know, children, children lack stability. They haven't fully formed a worldview, so they're vulnerable to people's lies and schemes. That's why you're so protective of your children. Paul uses the imagery of a small boat out on the ocean when wind and waves come up and the small boat is vulnerable to shipwreck because it's not stable in that environment. It's tossed to and fro by those strong winds. And what are the strong winds? False doctrine. Bad theology. Weak gospel. And what's at risk? The church that won't grow up out of childhood and start adulting as Christians is at risk. That's what's at risk, the very church. The church could be that small boat out in the, out in the ways of the ocean. The childish, careless church that isn't eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace which she has been given. She's at risk. That's what Paul's instructed us to do. The childish, lazy church that won't read and listen and study and learn and grow in the wisdom of God and the hope of their calling and the immeasurable greatness of the power of God that works within them. They're vulnerable. That's what Paul prayed we wouldn't be in chapter 1. The childish, selfish church that fails to see God's glorious plan for her and fails to take advantage of the teaching gifts given her so that she would grow up in the strength and power of God for battle, a battle she's already in, is at risk. And so you might ask, what is God willing to do for his church? 
What is God willing to do for us as a church so that we would win the battle and that all of Christ's enemies might be put beneath his feet and so that all things would be united in Christ because that's our Father's plan. What's he willing to do for us? He wants to fill us with himself. He wants to fill us with himself. Chapter 1, beginning in verse 22, and he has put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Chapter 2, verse 22, in him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. A temple for God to dwell in. Chapter 3, verse 19, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Chapter 4, verse 6, there's one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Brothers and sisters, God wants to fill us with himself. He wants to fill us with the fullness of Christ. To make us mature in the stature of the fullness of Christ. So that we would not be like children believing false teaching and succumbing to the deceitful schemes of men. But rather, we would live out the truth that we've been taught and live it out in love. Look at verse 15. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Now that word in the ESV, speaking, is, is really better understood living. It doesn't have to mean speaking verbally. It means speaks, shows, looks like. We're to live out the truth of Christ in the love of Christ as we grow and are filled with Christ. Which makes total sense since his New Testament command in John is for us to love one another as Christ has loved us. See, Paul uses this beautiful imagery to tell us again how the church works. It's organic using the, the metaphor of a body When every individual member of the body ministers to every other member of the body, the body builds itself up in love because they're doing it for one another with a growth that comes from Christ who is the head of the body. What kind of war is the church in? It's a battle of the truth over deceit. It's a war of love over disobedience. And Christ has given us gifts of strength according to his power for us to fight and win. It's the plan of God. It's the plan of God in Psalm 68. It's the plan of God in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And God's plan will not be thwarted. He will bring it to completion. 
So what are we to do? Let me wrap up. I just want to mention three things. Maybe this will help to put some handles on this. Three things that we can do. We can, we can worship God in awe. We can worship God in awe. He has ascended, having conquered, and is giving gifts to his people. He will conquer all of his enemies, just as Christ conquered sin and death for us on the cross. Just as Christ crushed the serpent's head on the cross, all of his enemies will be made his footstool. God is going about uniting all things in Christ. Our Christ, who's the head of the church, his church. God is filling us with himself. So that we, the church, will be to the praise of his glory. He calls us his treasured possession and the glory of his inheritance in the saints. Why? Because as Christ grows the church one day, as Christ grows the church throughout all time and throughout all of the cosmos, that that united church will fill the whole earth with God's glory as the waters cover the sea. He's able and he's worthy of our ever-expanding worship and gratitude to him. Knowing this, we should worship. Secondly, let me, uh, let me appeal to you. Let me appeal to you to honor the elders as they function, as elders. Now, it would be easy to say, well, skeptically, that sounds a little self-serving, Scott. Unless you read Ephesians chapter 4, and then you know that it's the faithful preaching of the word of God. This is, how the, this is how the church functions. This is how the church works. Follow their lead. Participate in the worship and discipleship and prayer ministries in the church. It's part of your being built up. It's part of your grace-gifted serving to build up others. Be willing to receive an assignment. Be willing to take direction. You've been given serving grace. Go be successful in it. Be serious about maturing in the faith yourself. And do spiritual good to one another in the faith. Be eager to maintain the unity and health of the body in the way that Christ has prescribed so that we could and we would together live out the truth in love. Last, let me appeal to you to pray. What was a mystery, Paul's made known to us. What Paul has taught you from Ephesians, you cannot now not know. You are responsible. You're responsible. We have God's glorious plan for his church to pray for. To pray that he would bring it about. To pray that he would sustain us. To pray that he would make us servants. We have God's glorious plan to unite all things in Christ to pray for. We don't just duck our heads in the sand and say, well, since God's going to do that, I guess I don't have to do anything. No, we should love it. We should want it. We want Christ to have his day of glory. It's the day he's looking forward to. He's our Savior. 
God's our father. We're, we're part of the family and we're interested in the family business. We have the church, the body of Christ, to pray for. Our church, other churches. Let's pray for the gifts of power and strength that Christ has given. That we would live out the truth in love. And that we would be filled with the fullness of Christ for his glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that Christ is our warrior king. We thank you that he has granted salvation through just judgment of his righteousness. We thank you that you have chosen to move in your church, to fill your church with your own fullness. That you've given us gifts so that we can grow and mature in Christ, knowing that and looking forward to the day when Christ comes and we will be perfect and complete in him, holy and blameless before our God. Lord, we pray your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. Amen.